this program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Tim Wise, On the Media, The Young Turks, NPR, Deco DC, The Tom Hartman Program, and Dixon White. I think it's important to know this history. Um, You know, it seems stale to some folks to talk about the origins of whiteness, but it's critical. If we're going to understand race and and racism, we have to understand that. If we're going to understand the class system in America, the economic system, we have to understand it because those two things are connected. So let's be clear, for those of us who are now called white in this room, that's a pretty new thing in history. We weren't white when our people got here. Our people didn't come here as white folks. They didn't use that terminology back in our countries of origin. That term was never used to describe Europeans writ large. All European people have been killing each other for generations. We didn't think of ourselves as members of one big happy family or team. The Irish and the English didn't consider themselves the same. Hell, northern Italians and southern Italians didn't consider themselves the same. So there was no white race until the colonies of what became the United States of America. And then in the mid-1600s, a series of court decisions, and then the reaction to several rebellions, most principally among them Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia and the Virginia Colony, led the courts and the authorities, the elite white folks, again, still not called white, the elite Europeans, to create this concept of the white race, counterposition to African peoples or indigenous Native North American peoples, later counterposition to Mexicans, half of whose country we stole in a war of aggression, later counterposition to... Asian-American folk, Chinese-Americans in particular, Chinese who we brought in here to build the railroads and didn't care if they died, and they did, by the thousands. Um, The white race was created as a trick by the elite, as a way to tell poor, landless Europeans, y'all are on our team, don't you know? Be with us, even though those poor folks had more in common with the black folks who were poor and landless, and with the indigenous people whose land was being taken, had more in common with them than with the elite white folks. We got, this has been a hell of a trick, because it's worked all throughout history. We still got poor white folks think they're going to be Bill Gates. No, you're not. You're not even going to be able to afford his computers let alone work for him and make a lot and be a billion. You're not going to be Bill Gates. We have poor white folks during the period of the Confederacy that were willing to go and fight and die to maintain a system, the only purpose of which was the maintenance of white supremacy and chattel slavery. Don't let anybody lie to you today and tell you that wasn't what it was because the folks back then were brave enough to say it. The white folks who formed the Confederacy, they didn't, they didn't have a bunch of BS arguments. Oh, it's about states' rights. It's about home and hearth and family and kith and kin. That's nonsense. They said that the cornerstone of their government was the system of white supremacy. Those are the words of the vice president of the Confederacy. Every single state that left the Union said that was why they were doing it. They gave no other reason because they weren't ashamed of it then. Now, white Southerners are like, no wasn't that. It wasn't white supremacy. It wasn't slavery. Yes, it was. It was that and nothing but that. Read the actual history of the time. But at the time, we got poor white folks who don't own other human beings, don't even own their own piece of land, don't own the shirt on their back, who were like, yeah, I'll go fight and die to keep your property. Really? What kind of trick is that? Like, if somebody was invading my block, threatening to take my house, and it's my house, you would think I would fight to keep it. But the slave owners, they didn't, you know, if you own 25 slaves, you got out of service. You didn't have to fight. So the slave owners got a bunch of non-slave owners to go fight to protect slave owners' stuff. How'd they do it? By saying, remember, you're white. And if they get free, they're going to take your job. No, fool, they got your job. That's what slavery is. 
Right? If you got to charge a dollar a day to work on the farm and they can get that guy to do it for free because they own him, guess who got the job? Not you, white man. So in a way, poor white folks would have been better off if slavery had been abolished. Because then they could have joined with black folks to get a different economic system, but they got tricked by this thing called the white race. And it's still happening. We're still fighting against immigrants, but only those from south of an artificial border, not from the north. And we're doing it under the same pretense. Well, they're going to they're, they're gonna take our jobs. We should all rally. First of all, Mexicans can't take a job that some white business person doesn't just give them because they can exploit their labor and not pay them a living wage and not pay them benefits. So if you're upset about that, I mean, we would be far better off, white and black workers would be far better off to have those folks come in, join in a union, fight for better wages, fight for better working conditions, and everybody gets a raise, as opposed to telling workers, you can't cross a border in search of a better wage, but business can cross borders in search of the lowest price for labor. Business can sell their stuff across borders. They can invest capital wherever they want. In fact, if they keep all their capital in another country, they don't even have to pay taxes on it in this country. Right? They can keep doing business here without paying taxes here. That's a fascinating thing. So we're going to let capital cross borders. We're going to let goods cross borders. We're not going to let workers cross borders. And then we're going to say that's a good deal for workers. No, it's not. It's a real good deal for capital, though. But it's not a very good deal for working people. So whiteness, once again, has tricked white working class people into thinking, if we could just seal that border, everything would be better. And every now and then they'll sucker some black folks into believing it. And they'll get some black pastor who has nine people in his church who will get up at some rally and will give a speech where he says, where he says, they're taking our black jobs. They didn't take, no, white folks destroyed those jobs. White folks closed down the factories in Gary and they closed down the factories in Detroit and they closed down the factories in Pittsburgh. That wasn't Mexicans that did that. And anyway, these Mexicans are just coming home, y'all. If you invade my house, if you invade my house and put me on the street, don't be surprised if I try to pick the lock to get back to what was mine. Don't be shocked by that. But I know they're never going to tell you why, no. They only want to tell you lies, no. Never ever going to tell you why, no. They only want to tell you lies, no. Never ever going to tell you why, no. They only want to tell you lies, it's time. Now, another instance of correcting the historical record, this time in the form of an apology. Back in 2006, the Charlotte Observer and Raleigh's News and Observer apologized in separate editorials for their part in a little-known chapter of American history. In North Carolina, 116 years ago, a biracial coalition of Republicans and populists had for some years controlled two Senate seats, the governorship, and a legislative majority. Supporters of the so-called fusion movement were mostly white, but in some counties, black men held elective office too. All that came to a bloody end one November night in what's known as the Wilmington Race Riot of 1898. Spurred on by the local press, white mobs set fire to black-owned businesses and overthrew the city's fusion government. They killed dozens of blacks and ran thousands out of town. 
Finally, in the year 2000, a state commission was created to investigate the episode. The commission concluded that the horror in Wilmington was not so much a riot as an insurrection, a coup d'etat orchestrated by prominent members of the Democratic Party. They wanted to topple the fusion government, and though they had big business on their side, as well as a number of regional papers, that wasn't enough. They needed the poor white farmers. And so, as Duke Professor Timothy Tyson told us a few years back, the Democrats used the printing press to paint the conflict in black and white. So they put this red-hot, scurrilous, very sort of sexually oriented, near-pornographic material out in the newspapers about the sort of black beast, black brutes, especially in the counties that had heavy black majorities. What you had to do was to shame white men who had voted with black men and say that they had failed to protect their women folk. They tried to shame white men into voting race instead of sticking with their economic interests. Can you give me some specific examples of headlines or articles or cartoons that were uh, inciting violence and racial hatred? Well, for example, there's a cartoon of a big black vampire-like thing with wings, the incubus of Negro domination, you know, carrying off white women in its claws. The News Observer would run a cartoon of a white woman taken before a black magistrate, for example, and the black magistrate, you know, being licentious as if, you know, oh, we're, you know, you're in trouble, are you? And then acting as though they would be sexually taking advantage of this. They interpreted any kind of self-assertion on the part of black men as really being about sexuality, you know, about taking white women. There's a temptation to see this as kind of an interesting historical footnote, but it's more than that. It, it was really a watershed event for the politics and governance of North Carolina for a century. Oh, this is the most important political event in North Carolina's history, with the exception of the Civil War. When we had a coup in North Carolina and the federal government did nothing, President McKinley never even uttered the word Wilmington. What that did was send a signal that you can run black people out of public life in the South. No holes barred, and we quickly see this happening. Georgia uh, had a very similar campaign in 1906 that was really modeled on what had happened in North Carolina quite consciously. That becomes the heyday of lynching. This becomes the time of disfranchisement all across the South where black people lost the vote. So it's not just a North Carolina event. It's really a, an event of national importance. And the newspapers in Georgia and elsewhere in the South, did they mimic the News and Observer in its uh, you know, racial browbeating? The News and Observer, the Atlanta Constitution, the Times-Picayune in Louisiana, the Washington Post, all of really sort of the Democratic Party papers of that era follow this line. And this campaign broke a lot of ground with that, actually, because you don't, you don't see this type of stuff during slavery, for example, you don't see this idea in the white media that somehow the enslaved black men are a threat to white women. But when black men wish to be citizens, somehow the closer a black man got to a ballot box, the more he looked like a rapist. And you see these same images echoing into the 1970s and beyond. They seem so near yet fade away so fast I must stay here and 
about the Tulsa race riots in history books when you were in school, but it's definitely a story that's worth knowing about, especially considering the riots that are currently taking place in Baltimore. The Tulsa race riots occurred in 1921, and it was basically a war by the KKK against a very successful and prosperous black community referred to as Black Wall Street. According to reports, the best description of Black Wall Street, or Little Africa as it was also known, would be to compare it to a mini Beverly Hills. It was the golden door of the black community during the early 1900s, and it proved that African Americans could create a successful infrastructure. Black America's most prosperous community, Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, went up in flames June 1st, 1921, in a KKK-led Tulsa race riot. This community consisted of individuals that looked out for one another. But more than that, it consisted of individuals that were beyond successful. Some of the most intelligent minds got together and created some of the most successful businesses. They looked out for one another. They created an education system that we can only dream of today. They believed in nepotism only because these black individuals had been so disenfranchised by society that they felt that they could only look out for one another. And as a result, money stayed in their community. In fact, it was passed off about a hundred times within the community before it left the community. Right now, when it comes to a black neighborhood, a dollar lasts in that neighborhood for about 15 minutes and then it leaves and so they managed to create a society that was successful they were prospering but it turns out that white individuals in neighboring uh, areas were not too happy about that particularly the KKK so this led to a riot and the way the KKK crafted this riot shows you exactly how deep that jealousy and that envy was what they did is they accused a man of raping a white woman but, of course, that man didn't rape anyone. They just wanted to accuse him so they could go into the community and start violence and trouble. And so they accused this man. A number of KKK members go into the community, and as one black man is armed, ready to defend himself, he's confronted by a white individual who asks him what he's about to do with that gun. And he tells the white man, well, I'm going to do what I need to do if I need to defend myself. At that point, there was a physical altercation over the gun. The white man gets shot, and he's killed, and then the riots erupt. Now, the outcome of this is beyond disturbing. The night's carnage left 3,000 African Americans dead and over 600 successful businesses lost. Among these were 21 churches, 21 restaurants, 30 grocery stores, and two movie theaters, plus a hospital, a bank, a post office, libraries, schools, law offices, a half dozen private airplanes, and even a bus system. So the KKK goes into the successful black community and absolutely destroys it. And so when we talk about violence in the United States and when we talk about things like white privilege or institutional racism, this is why it's incredibly important to take these issues seriously. Because when you look at the black community and you wonder why it is that they're angry, why it is that they're rioting, why it is that they're fighting back against things like police brutality and institutional racism, you have to look at the historical context of this country. You have to consider the fact that there was no 
restitution in this case. These people, 3,000 people, lost their lives. Their businesses were lost. What they had built was completely demolished. And you fast forward to today, and you look at statistics, and you realize, yeah, maybe things aren't quite as violent as the Tulsa race riots, but you have to consider the fact that African Americans are four times more likely to get arrested for marijuana. In fact, if you have a black sounding name, you are 50% less likely to get hired for a job. When you look at our private prisons, or if you look at the school to prison pipeline, African Americans and Latinos are much more likely to be victims of that. And so these are the types of things that are holding them back. This is a type of institutional racism that we talk about on the show on a regular basis. And this is the type of story that we don't learn about in history classes. And again, you look at something like this and you realize that if you just create an opportunity for people to prosper, they will prosper, regardless of their race, regardless of their background. That's why education is important. That's why making sure that you give everyone an equal opportunity is important. And that's why it's incredibly important to take stories like the Baltimore riots as seriously as possible and understand that even though there are those who are violent and are doing things that might be considered wrong, there are also those who are legitimately legitimately arguing about something that they've been victims of for a very long time. Scenes of West Baltimore's troubled neighborhoods do raise natural questions. One is why they seem heavily segregated generations after legal segregation ended. Richard Rothstein studied that question. He's with the Economic Policy Institute, and he says Baltimore neighborhoods reflect a national legacy of segregation. Generations ago, during President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, the federal government started subsidizing a lot of housing, but they did it a certain way. The New Deal was a coalition of Northern Democrats and Southern Democrats. The Southern Democrats were uh, segregationist, and in many cases the Northern Democrats compromised with them in order to get housing programs enacted. From the 1930s onward, white people moved into new houses. Many were in new suburbs like Levittown, New York. Black people got public housing apartments in the same center cities where they already lived. Decades later, there's an enormous gap between the grandchildren of one group and the grandchildren of the other. In 1947, when Levittown was first opened, homes were sold to white working-class families for about $8,000 apiece. Uh, that is about $125,000 today. Mm -hmm. African-Americans were prohibited from buying into those developments, even though they had the economic means to do so. Well, a half century later, those homes are now selling for $500,000. They are no longer accessible for working-class families. We passed a law in 1968 saying that African-Americans now have the right to buy into Levittown. But giving them a right to buy into a place that's no longer affordable, when they could have bought into it when it was affordable had they been permitted to do so, is not a very meaningful right. In that half century, the white families, uh, working class families who moved into Levittown, gained equity appreciation of perhaps three hundred fifty, four hundred thousand dollars 
They used that wealth to send their children to college. They bequeathed it to their children and grandchildren. African Americans living in crowded central city areas were able to accumulate none of that wealth. As a result, today, nationwide, African American wealth is 5% of white family wealth. That enormous difference is entirely attributable to federal housing policy to suburbanize the white population and keep African Americans in central cities. Now, help me connect this history to the news, because we've been focused on Baltimore because of a police force that is accused of, well, a number of police officers are accused of killing a man, and we have reports of a pattern of this kind of abuse. What is the connection between historic housing segregation and historic wealth gaps and this kind of police behavior in a community? Well, the police behavior is something that should be remedied. It's a, a terrible a criminal operation on the part of police departments, but it doesn't start with police departments. When you have a low-income population concentrated in an area, little hope, unemployment rates in places like inner city of Baltimore are two and three times the rate for whites. Well, you get behavior in those kinds of communities that uh, reinforces uh, police hostility. It becomes a cycle of misbehavior and police aggression. And it's attributable to the concentration of disadvantaged families in very crowded inner-city communities. In recent days, have you found yourself yelling at the TV that everybody's missing the point? I hope I don't sound like I'm yelling. Um, Muttering at the TV, let us say. (laughs) Well, I do think that Americans have forgotten this history of purposeful racial segregation. You know, in 1970, during Richard Nixon's first term, he had the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, George Romney, the father of the recent uh, presidential candidate. Mm -hmm. Uh, Romney said that the federal government has created a white noose around African-American communities in urban areas, and it was the federal government's obligation to untie that noose. And he implemented a series of programs designed to force metropolitan areas to desegregate. He um, denied federal funds for sewers and for water projects to communities that didn't uh, take action to desegregate. And he actually denied federal funds to Baltimore County because it refused to desegregate its area. Eventually, the uh, Nixon administration reined him in. The program he was following was terminated. Uh, He was forced out of the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, and we haven't had anything that aggressive since. But we once knew, uh, the American public knew, even moderate Republicans like George Romney knew that the federal government had established the segregation and they understood it was a federal government obligation to undo it. But since that time, we've forgotten this history and we think somehow these ghettos arose by accident and there's nothing we can do about them to reverse the segregation. Segregation, separation, murderation, bad situation, confusion, inoculation, that's what Babylon has. If you're starting a business or otherwise looking to get online quickly and easily, GoDaddy.com can help with their new Get Online Today toolkit. The toolkit is everything you need to get started. A memorable domain name, a professional website that's easy to build with GoDaddy's templates, and personalized email powered by Microsoft Office 365, all starting at $1 a month with the purchase of an annual plan. It's easy to get set up, but if you have any issues, GoDaddy provides award-winning phone and chat support 24-7, so if there's anything you need, just call. Check out the Get Online Today toolkit at GoDaddy.com slash left. That's GoDaddy.com slash left. The domain name is included only with an annual plan. See site for details.
It's graduation day, and the students are all dressed in their caps and gowns, their families in their finest, and all rose as the procession of dignitaries walked in. It was June 4, 1965. Howard University in Washington, D.C., a predominantly black college, and most of the 5,000 assembled in the campus's main quadrangle were African Americans. The commencement speaker that day, the person making his way up to the podium, Lyndon Baines Johnson, President of the United States. Patricia Harris Wallace was a grad student in the School of Social Work at the time. Most of us had never seen a president, so it was, it was thrilling, and thrilling for my parents also to come up and see the President of the United States. The weather was just absolutely terrific. There was a, a tremendous a sense of anticipation as to what President Johnson might say. Patrick Swigert was a senior, part of the graduating class 50 years ago. One assumed uh, that he would have something important to say at Howard. We were, in one sense, grateful that he chose Howard to speak at commencement. And we thought it was an acknowledgment of the importance of Howard as a platform for the president to say something important. To set the scene, you have to remember what was happening at that time. It is June 1965. The civil rights movement was in full swing. That March, Dr. Martin Luther King had led thousands of nonviolent demonstrators from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. But for the students in the audience at Howard that day, there were some very mixed feelings about President Johnson. Lillian McLean Beard and Paul Wellington Smith were students at Howard and there that day. Some people just said, now, why is he coming here? Going to mess up our graduation? He, number one, is a white southerner from Texas. And so many of us during that period were very skeptical about President Johnson. Some people just the idea that he was a white man coming there to talk. Some people didn't like that. The president started speaking at 6.35 p.m., and pretty quickly he got right down to business. But rather than focus on his legislative victories, such as the 1964 Civil Rights Act, Johnson spoke about the cold, hard reality of racism and the suffering of blacks, or using the language of the times, Negroes, had endured and continued to endure because of it. In far too many ways, American Negroes have been another nation, deprived of freedom, crippled by hatred, the doors of opportunity closed to hope. Freedom, said Johnson. Freedom to vote and hold a job and go to school or a public place is the beginning. But he cautioned, freedom is not enough. You do not wipe away the scars of centuries by saying now, you are free to go where you want and do as you desire and choose the leaders you please. You do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bringing up to the starting line of a race, and then say, 
you are free to compete with all the others and still justly believe that you have been completely fair. Thus, it is not enough just to open the gates of opportunity. All our citizens must have the ability to walk through those gates. What Johnson was introducing was the concept of affirmative action, the idea that you couldn't just open the gates of opportunity, but that you had to recognize that some people needed help just getting to that gate. To this end, equal opportunity is essential, but not enough, not enough. Johnson told the crowd that America had failed the Negro, He recited the statistics, laying out precisely in numbers just how the population was trapped in poverty, unemployment, lack of education. Then Johnson did something really startling. He explains that there's something different about white and black poverty. These differences are not racial differences. They are solely and simply the consequence of ancient brutality. Past injustice and present prejudice. And then the President of the United States went one step further. Perhaps most important, its influence radiating to every part of life is the breakdown of the Negro family structure. For this, most of all, White America must accept responsibility. There's a good way and a bad way. So don't pretend you don't know what I mean. There's a fire burning somewhere, and it ain't about to go out. I'm talking about accountability for all the things that are going down. Boy, Republicans are really mad that people are talking about Dylan Roof and how he was a right-winger, conservative, and racist, and he used the Confederate flag as a symbol. Now, all those things are indisputably true. That doesn't indict all right-wingers. I mean, there could be extreme liberals. That doesn't indict me. But apparently, these guys are taking it kind of personal. So that's up to them why they're taking it personal. Let's start with Rush Limbaugh. Uh, he has a theory on uh, why we're all making such a big deal out of this. By the way, we're making a big deal out of it because nine people were murdered in a church. But no, Rush says there's a different reason why. Somebody at the New York Times, in the midst of all that's going on in South Carolina and pretty much everywhere else, I'm telling you folks, there is an all-out assault on the conservative way of life. The biggest threat they face is domestic political opposition. The one thing, ISIS is not threatening their power. The Chicoms are not threatening their power. The Chicoms are not here. ISIS is not here. 
But the Republicans are. The conservatives are. The conservatives run against them in elections. The conservatives want to win the presidency and as many elective offices as possible. That's the equivalent of taking power away from these people. The biggest threat they think they face is us. So anything that happens, such as this, this horrible sad event in Charleston, South Carolina, immediately becomes something totally unrelated to what happened in the event. What now? The story cleansing? A cleansing of Southern culture? What the hell is that? It can only be one thing. Southern culture is considered conservative, which is racist, sexist, big, and homophobe. They're getting rid of the flag, and they're going to get rid of any other symbols they can. But it's all about destroying what they think is a last Republican geographic stronghold. Stronghold. Now, wait a minute. Uh, did liberals in the mainstream media send in Dylan Roof to shoot nine black people so that they could start a devious plan to destroy the last bastion of Republicans in the country? No. He picked up a Confederate flag, took pictures with it all, all the time. He had a Confederate flag and mention of it on his license plate. He, he wrote a manifesto about how uh, whites uh, had to regain power in this country. He went to conservative websites, got those ideas, put it in his manifesto. He went out and killed nine people. And then you turned it around and said, oh, you see how they're doing what he just said, quote, an all-out assault on the South and Southern culture. No, Dylan Roof is the one who did the assault. Nobody else did an assault. These guys, they got twisted, twisted, twisted. No, no, no. You see, it's not Dylan Roof's fault. It's not the Confederate flag's fault. It's not racist's fault. It's the liberals' fault. Of course. Right. Now, uh, O'Reilly's going to take it to another level. He's going to declare war. Ooh. Is an amazing thing to watch. The USA has gone from being the land of the free and the home of the brave to a country dominated by white supremacy. No longer is it white privilege, now it's supremacy. The allegation that white Americans are actively trying to keep black Americans down. The only TV network that does not accept the blatant dishonesty that America is a white supremacist nation is Fox News. And some of us on this channel get viciously attacked for standing up for the truth. As Talking Points has reported, the no-spin truth is that there are anti-black bigots in America. Of course there are. But to say the entire country is defined by them is a gross lie. But there are problems in the African-American precincts, especially in the inner city. However, the problems have little to do with white people, rather a corrosive culture. The truth is there is no organized effort to harm black people by white people. That doesn't exist here. The real racism is looking away from what is really harming black Americans, the root cause of poverty. And as Talking Points has reported over and over and over again, that is the dissolution of the African-American traditional family, chaos on the streets in poor neighborhoods, and an educational system that does not demand the same standards of achievement that are demanded in the white neighborhoods. Oh, I see. There's no racism left in the country. And you decided that you were going to prove that point by saying the problem with black people in this country is black people, black culture. Is there a problem of racism in the white culture? No. Yes, there are some races in the country. But overall, there is no problem with the white culture. No, the problem is uh, black culture has disintegrated and 
And and that's why you're having the cities, uh, the inner city problems that you see now. Where did anybody get the idea that Fox News perhaps hasn't diagnosed the issue of race in America correctly? So where would they get the idea that they blame black people for the problems rather than looking to see if they are systemic problems? Hey, why are black people uh, in the inner cities? Now, there's a lot of different reasons. Uh, one was, of course, the history of this country that led to certain migration patterns and certain socioeconomic situations. Are you going to deny that? No, everybody started on an equal footing. No, it's not relevant. It's not going to look away. No, no, no. The real problem is black culture. Gee, I don't know why anybody would accuse you of ever being racist or, or not seeing the uh, issue clearly. But wait, we haven't even gotten to the war yet. I don't know. Okay, let's find out who he's declaring war on. And the far-left smear merchants have the nerve, the gall to say America is a white supremacist nation? Fox News is attacked when we report the truth? Well, you want a war, you got a war. I'm not going to sit here any longer and take this garbage. People who lie, run the country down, who are racist themselves, are going to be called out right here on the fact. That is the truth. And the liars who distort the record are now on notice. Oh, my God. Are, are we on notice? Is he going to come to get us? You're going to get it. I'm coming to your house. I am going to be the cop that stops it. End of this. By the way, he's not ending racism. He's not declaring war on racism. He's not declaring war on any of the underlying problems. He's declaring war on the people who point it out. You left-wing smear merchants! I'm going to get you! If you actually talk about race in this country and, and how people are affected by not just institutional, but things that are stereotypes that, that linger in our heads. For example, if you pointed out a study that shows that if there's a black hand on eBay selling the same exact product as a white hand, it's let, it gets a lower price and it's less likely to be trusted to deliver the products. That's a study. Can I talk about that? Or is science not allowed? You're gonna get it! War! How dare you point that out? Same exact resume. You put a white sounding name on it, it gets, uh, called in for an interview twice as much as a quote-unquote black-sounding name. Study, you can look it up. Okay, am I allowed to mention that? You smear merchant! Talking about facts and science! I'm going to stop it! And more from O'Reilly. You want to fuck with me? Okay. You want to play games? Okay. I can play with you. Come on. Do you want to play with us? Okay. Hello to my little friend! Okay. Say hello to my little friend. <laughs> this guy, the funny thing is that he thinks he's tough. Like he he walked off that set strutting like this, like see through. Yeah, left wing smear merchants got him. Got him. What about the real problems in the country? No, don't you dare talk about them. Don't you dare talk about them. Okay, there are no problems in this country. Well, of course, except for black culture. I'm black history, I'm black culture, I'm black history, I'm black culture. If you're self-employed, then you're familiar with all the difficulties that come with business accounting, trying to keep your business expenses separate from all your personal stuff, tracking deductible expenses, estimating quarterly taxes, and on and on. Don't get me wrong, self-employment is great. Self-accounting, though, 
Not so much. Except now the good folks at Intuit, makers of financial software for as long as I can remember, now bring you QuickBooks Self-Employed. They take care of everything you need. Expense tracking to keep your finances straight. They'll help you maximize your business deductions and even help you prepare your quarterly estimated taxes. Find out what QuickBooks Self-Employed can do for you and receive 50% off at tryselfemployed.com slash left. That's tryselfemployed.com slash left. Okay, I want to talk about deprogramming America. Let me back up a little bit. Back in the uh, 60s and 70s and and 80s, I mean, it's still going on, but uh, in fact, probably its most visible manifestation now is Scientology. But there were all these cults in the United States. You had the Maharaji, who was the 14-year-old perfect master, who you know essentially said he was like Jesus. Uh, a friend of mine was in his his cult. In fact, uh, my friend got kidnapped out of that cult and deprogrammed by Ted Patrick, uh, and then went to work with Ted Patrick uh, to deprogram others. Uh, you had the Moonies. You had Reverend Moon, who explicitly said that he was the reincarnation of Jesus, and uh, all these Mooney followers. You know, yeah, so you had these cults. Now these were relatively benign cults in that they took kids away from their from from their families they they isolated people but they didn't lead to death i mean the 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 most extreme example of that was jim jones jim jones had a cult that was actually a death cult he he moved down to guyana and you know they all drank the kool-aid literally and died nations can be seized by cults just like religions can be seized by cults um, in the you know I lived in Germany in eighty six and eighty seven and 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 if you read the rise and fall of the Third Reich by uh, William Schur, uh or other other books I mean I was there I, I not during the World War II obviously but you know, living in Germany I knew some old Nazis literally people who had been in in Hitler's army or who were who were in fact I knew one guy who was still a Nazi he's now dead but he, you know he he was he's an old guy from that era. And what happened in Germany and happened in Japan, and we can find modern-day parallels to this with, with uh, Slobodan Milosevic and Radovan Karavic and, uh, and is it Bosnia or Serbia? I, I mix up that part of the world. Um, is, and, and, and frankly, ISIL, ISIS right now. And, and in fact, I would say, you know, Wahhabism in general what you find are these basically death cults. They are they are cults every bit as much as the Maharajis or or Reverend Moons uh, is a cult. But they're cults that involve the subjection or murder or usually both of quote inferior people. We played with this in the United States in two big ways. The you know most recently. Uh, against people of all races in the 1920s with the euthanasia movement, where we were sterilizing women who were mentally retarded and and people who were born with birth defects. Uh, We were sterilizing them. Our eugenics movement, well, the eugenics movement actually began in England. It came out of Herbert Spencer, uh, uh, Charles Darwin's cousin, who was an economist, and and a few other people, and and, uh, came to the United States. And we did it big time. And Hitler actually used our eugenics posters about, you know, cleansing the race, essentially, 
in his early campaigns in the early 1930s. So throughout the throughout the 1930s and right up toward the end of the, the, the World War II, in Germany you had Germans who actually believed that Hitler was somehow associated with Jesus, that he might be John the Baptist, he might be the reincarnation of Jesus, that he and Hitler himself was saying he was bringing a thousand-year Reich. Ein, 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 uh, ein Volk, ein, We ein Welt, ein Reich, ein Führer. You know, one world, one people, one, 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 uh, one, one leader. Similarly, and, and you had German so soldiers, you know, enthusiastically, not just going off to die, but also killing people. From Auschwitz to, to uh, you know, Belsen-Belsen uh, to, to uh, Dachau, although Dachau is technically a work camp, not a, not a death camp. But a lot of people died there. I think Dachau, if you want to draw parallels, uh, would be probably more similar to American plantations. It was a slave labor camp. And they were all over Germany, by the way. There were hundreds of them. And they were manufacturing commercial goods. So you had a death cult in Germany. In Japan, you had a death cult. Emperor worship, you know, when Admiral Perry first broke Japan open to the world in the late 19th century, as I recall, with his black ships arriving and just shocking the Japanese, the Japanese response to Perry literally forcing at gunpoint the Japanese to allow Americans and Europeans to come in and trade with them and interact with them was xenophobic nationalism and racism and emperor worship. The Japanese had, had always, to a certain extent, believed that the emperor was the reincarnation, or not the reincarnation, was the, the last, whoever was the emperor was the, the last in the long lineage that went back to the very first man. And the very first man was born from the sun, the sun god. So essentially, the emperor was like, you know, the descendant of Jesus Christ sort of thing. The, the descendant of the Son of God. If Jesus had had children, and they had had children, and they had had children, and it had passed down all these generations, and the Pope was actually, could claim, could, could claim a bloodline back to Jesus. That's how it was in Japan. And people were so committed to this man that they thought was divine, that they were willing to, to commit suicide, the kamikaze pilots, all this kind of thing. This sort of, of uh, you know, death cult, Radovan Karadovich and uh, Slobodan Milosevic, Karadovich was a psychiatrist. He actually, and, and his, job, his goal was to cleanse the, the Muslims from that part of what was originally Yugoslavia, as I recall. And, and he did it by setting up rape camps where they would bring in hundreds of thousands of Muslim women and have good Christian soldiers rape them repeatedly until they were impregnated. And the, the more blonde the soldiers, the better. Just the, Hitler was doing something very similar in many cases. These are death cults. You wake up out of a death cult when you realize that it was a death cult. Most, most people, you know, they get caught up in a cult, they don't even realize they're in a cult. It was losing World War II that woke up the Germans and woke up the Japanese to the death cult of Nazism and the death cult of 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 emperor worship it was losing the war you know it was uh, losing the war in the in uh, uh, the former yugoslavia that that woke up many of the serbs or the bosnians i forget I, again I, my apologies i forget which is which 
Here in the United States, we had a death cult that was running an institution called slavery for several hundred years. We had concentration camps that we call plantations for several hundred years. That death cult is still alive and well in the South. And it's not just in the South, by the way. This is why up in Wisconsin when Scott Walker said, oh, well, we're going to make welfare recipients pee in a cup before they get their welfare. Even though, you know, drug abuse among people on welfare is actually lower than any other, pretty much any other group. We're going to humiliate them. Why? Well, because, you know, and he, he mentioned Milwaukee, which has got a very large black population, because they're black people, of course. Racism and slavery are inextricably tied. Paul Krugman, on June 22nd, in his piece, Slavery's Long Shadow, he says, as recently as the 1980s, half of all Americans opposed interracial marriage. Think about that for a second. He said, race made Reaganism possible. And to this day, Southern whites overwhelmingly vote Republican to the tune of 85 to 90 percent in the Deep South. Then he looked at another paper that was done in 2001 by some relatively conservative economists, actually, titled, Why Doesn't the United States Have a European-Style Welfare State? Why, it turns out? Well, because most white people think that welfare, most welfare goes to black people. They're wrong, but they think that. And so, there you go. He points out the 2012 Supreme Court, uh, you know, gave states the ability to block expanding Medicaid. Who, who turned such a thing down? 22 states, 80% of the population was in states that practice slavery. There's a new thing going that's a rival to crack. Blacks talking through their nose, trying not to be black. They brought us here on ships, priced by size, height, and color. Had sex with young sisters, and they bred the stock of brothers. Have you lost your fucking mind forgetting about the black struggle? Racism in effect, and they only see your color. Only Indians were here, not the black, white, and other. Be proud of what you got, because it's an improvised culture. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, showing up for racial justice. Now, as has been discussed on this show fairly regularly, members of marginalized groups are called on almost continuously to do the 101-level explanations of their issues and to teach people how to be allies. This work is thankless, exhausting, and often takes valuable time away from real movement and liberation work. But to achieve equality in any real way, majority groups must participate in the efforts to recognize and solidify immigrants' rights, women's rights, trans rights, gay rights, and rights for people of color, just to name a few. So how do movements engage the majority without ceding the mic or spending resources they don't have teaching allyship? Enter Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE. This national network of groups and individuals does the work of organizing white people for racial justice. On their About page, they explain their role through a quote from Alicia Garza, a community organizer and co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement. Quote, We need you defecting from white supremacy and changing the narrative of white supremacy by breaking white silence. Unquote. 
Surge helps train white people to play supportive roles in the campaigns driven by people of color and how to bring a racial justice focus back to their organizing efforts in climate, economic, political, LGBTQ, voting rights, feminist campaigns and movements. One of the most important things white people can do to challenge white supremacy is to speak up in typically white privileged spaces. Showing up for racialjustice.org has a great action tab with local events across the country. There are affiliated chapters in almost every state. You can also sign up to start one in your area. They need volunteers to help with social media, fundraise, write for the blog, do graphic design and web layout, plan actions, facilitate trainings, basically whatever skills you have, they're needed and useful. Katie participated in the White People Take Action for Charleston conference call webinar last week. 500 people were on the call, and the suggestions like pushing back on right-wing media and engaging anyone carrying an All Lives Matter sign at an event so black organizers don't have to were fantastic and designed to keep white allies in the background while also being visible support. Surge also provides a handy redirect for people of color trying to go through the 101 racism and white supremacy explanations. It can be hard, if not impossible, to tell if people approaching you online or in your daily lives are asking questions in good faith and with real interest. The beauty of referring them to a resource like Surge is that those truly looking for a way to understand and get involved will be appreciative, and those who aren't are quickly dismissed. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If you're on board for helping break down white supremacy from the inside out, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about showing up for racial justice via social media so that others in your network can get involved. I'm coming to you here in my truck today. I got a Ford F-150. And I like it. Yeah, I'm a redneck. I always have been. But as rednecks were formed, many years I was a racist. And I didn't like blacks. I used to call me N-word and whatnot. And now I come a point and realize there's some personal experiences. White people are racist. Not all of them. But white culture is. Our white country is. Our nation is. Our American culture is full of white supremacy. And we live in a white supremacist culture that caters to white people. Everything from the media to education to art to culture to politics is whitewashed. What is not whitewashed as far as the status quo, as far as the dominant culture, everything's whitewashed. This country was built for white people. And it's time us Americans, us white Americans, 
came to terms with that and realized that we're benefiting from that. We created slavery. We created a culture and a system of white supremacy that has benefited us for 400 years. You think maybe it's about time we stop being lazy as white people and take some fucking responsibility. I can tell you as an ex-redneck, as an ex-racist, now I'm still a redneck. I boat, fish, hunt, whatever the fuck I want to do. I'll drink a beer. I eat too much pork, barbecue. You can tell looking at me. But my point is, and yeah, y'all can call me fat. I don't give a damn. I'm going to always have a lot of haters. I always have. But there's a new South, new America. That's called white racial responsibility. And it's time we all took some, y'all. So let's take a little bit of white racial responsibility. Let's start by standing up against it. Let's recognize that in every American institution, education, financial, health care, justice, for God's sake it's injustice, in the police departments and our police officers, many of them. And when I talk, I'm not talking about all. I ain't saying all white people are bad. I'm saying we've got an evil called white supremacy in this damn culture. Stop being defensive. Get off your fucking ass and do something about it. Speak up. Don't ever listen. Don't ever, ever ignore racism. If you hear something racist, fucking stand up as a white American. Take some fucking responsibility. It's the inaction that has always destroyed other peoples and other nations. It's the inaction. It's the indifference. It's that damn... Oh, well, it'll take care of itself attitude. Oh, I don't see color. By God, you better fucking see color. If you don't see color, then how the fuck you gonna help it? How you gonna fix it? Our system sees color. Our culture sees color. We're indoctrinated to see colors. Don't tell me you can't fucking see color. Motherfucker, see color. See the black experience. See the brown experience. See what we did to Native Americans. See what colonization did. Look at what the fuck with the Crusades did. Get educated. Open a fucking book. Read, watch a fucking video. Watch Roots again. <laughs> watch Malcolm X. Do something. Think outside of the fucking white box. Black people live it every fucking day. Brown people live it every fucking day. Think beyond your own fucking experience. Think beyond your own self. Imagine. The privileges that you have just because of your fucking skin. I ain't saying you ain't suffered. We all suffer. Stop being defensive. What I'm saying is, is that we get certain privileges. We're not harassed by the police. Okay? We're not denied a house loan or denied to live in a neighborhood. We're not uncomfortable living in rural America. I'm not uncomfortable living in rural America, but I tell you what. A lot of black people don't even want to fucking drive through where I live. Why? Racist. We're fucking racist. So I'm not saying why people are bad. Stop being defensive. I'm saying take some fucking responsibility. All people are equal. God made us that way. Well, let's knock this fucking supremacy out of our fucking country. So I'm just saying white America, wake up. Look in the fucking racial mirror and look at what we have done. Look at how we benefit. And let's do something about it. Let's speak up. Let's vote. Let's create legislation and policies to fight against this shit. Let's make things fair and equal. Let's take some responsibility and never, ever, ever ignore 
any form of racism that you see or experience or witness, always speak up and act up. Please. Okay, this is Adriana from Long Beach. I just listened to your Rachel Dozal episode. I could go on, but I want to just co- give pushback to two inaccurate statements that were played from the Young Turks at the beginning of the show. Jezebel.com has an article about how when Rachel was attending Howard University, nobody thought she was black because she wasn't pretending to be black. She walked into the school admissions office on the very first day as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, white woman. So when she went to collect her scholarship, which was an art scholarship for which being black was not a prerequisite, they had assumed she was black because she submitted black art, but when she showed up at this school, nobody had any doubts, and that's stated in that Jezebel article by someone who attended the school at the same time she did and then ended up working at the school. So that is just factually inaccurate. The other thing is reporting uh, falsely, making false police claims, making false police reports is a crime. And yet, even though there's no love lost between Spokane PD or Coeur d'Alene PD and Richard Dozal, she hasn't been charged. I'm wondering if there's, because that's because there's not enough evidence to charge her and to suggest that Coeur d'Alene, especially with its history of being a spot where uh, white supremacist groups um, were big, that somebody who is purposely advocating for black issues might not be, would have to fake being a victim of a hate crime is to just ignore Coeur d'Alene's history. Then the other comment I want to make, and this is probably too long, is who gets to deputize people to racially police others? Like, who, who, what academy do you have to go to, uh, cadet academy do you have to go to to be a member of the racial police and to say who is in the in-group and who is in the out-group? That work used to be done by the state with one-drop rules and with anti-miscegenation rules and so forth and so on. And I'm, I'm amazed at the willingness of the descendants of people against whom racial policing was used to pick up the mantle of deputizing themselves to be racial police. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Glabusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message on the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestofleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. Now, I want to reply to the voicemail we just heard from Adriana talking about Rachel Dolezal. And she basically makes three points, and I'll happily concede the first two, which I don't find to be interesting, and then we'll dive into the third point. So the first was that the Young Turks or anyone else uh, suggested that Rachel presented herself as black when going to Howard University. Personally, I only heard anyone say she represented as black 
when applying to Howard University, and, and Howard, I think, was clearly confused. They assumed she was black based on her application, and then she got there, and she was white, and no one was confused anymore. That's what I heard everyone say. So that was one of Adriana's points. The second is there's not enough evidence to charge her of putting uh, threatening or hateful messages in the NAACP, I think it was their P.O. box. And yes, there's clearly no evidence pointing directly at her. The thing that was in question was that the messages were left in the box without having gone through the postal system. So it means someone with access to the box, someone with a key, put it in there. And yeah, that's not enough to convict Rachel. It's definitely not enough to charge her. And so in a country where everyone's innocent until proven guilty, yeah, of of course we don't uh, declare her guilty of that. I only heard it referenced as one of an incredibly long laundry list of very strange things that was surrounding her. So no, it's not enough to convict. It's just very strange and worth mentioning. The third point is where things get interesting. Uh, Adriana is asking rhetorically, who deputizes people to racially police others? And this is particularly interesting because just a few weeks ago was the last time I heard from Adriana when she had sent in an eight-minute essay about policing the gender identities of trans women. Having breasts and a functioning vagina and even having the female mind is not everything that makes up what it means to be a woman. It is only half of what makes up what it means to be a woman. Outside of my physiological femaleness, my actual womanhood was created in the society and age in which I was raised. Men and women talk to little girls differently than they talk to little boys. My womanhood was being created in the very way that the people in my family spoke to me as a little girl. Had I been born a boy, they would literally have talked to me using different language than they used talking to a sister who was close to me in age. The language men and women use when talking to toddler boys and toddler girls actually makes a difference in the way boys and girls think. That just gives you a taste, but if you want to hear uh, more of that and my full reaction to it, you can. It's at the end of episode 923 that I posted on May 19th. And these two issues are fascinating because they are not mirror images of each other. But they're kind of like funhouse mirror images of each other, you know? The circumstances really do not line up, so they make a bad comparison. But they're close enough that they bring out similar reactions in people. But maybe because it's a funhouse mirror, the reactions themselves get, you know, flipped on their heads or something. Now, before I go further, I want to replay a snippet that was on the last episode that is the single most interesting and enlightening thing I heard anyone say about the Rachel Dolezal case. So you have three different uh, way uh, criteria that can work to to create race: lineage, appearance, and cultural assimilation. There are some indigenous groups that use cultural assimilation. I think if you talk like a group, if you have accepted their ways and their belief systems, that you can be a full member of that group. And this is the kind of thing that Dolajal is kind of making, you know, reference to. She's claiming a kind of cultural assimilation. But we know that she was presenting herself as black and relying on the fact that people around her were assuming that meant lineage. She may herself have been, you know, wanting to use this definition of cultural assimilation, but she was playing on the fact that in the United States it's lineage, and that's what people are assuming, and she had to know that. 
So that is the best explanation I've heard of how a race gets defined in America, because apparently it gets defined differently in other places. And, you know, we know that there is nothing in our DNA that separates the races. It's just completely a social construction. And as Adriana pointed out, we used to codify that social construction into law for the purposes of oppressing people of color. And since the civil rights era, the law, you know, kind of, sort of says that people must be treated equally regardless of race. So now we're just left with the social standards by themselves, not codified into law. So can cultural standards be changed? Could there be a shift in thinking so that blackness started being judged solely on one's adoption of black culture rather than on lineage? Yes, of course. Anything about culture can be changed. It just requires people to actually change their minds about it. I mean, this show is about trying to change culture in addition to policy. So I'm very familiar with it. So if someone like Rachel Dolezal or Adriana wants to do the work to change the culture about racial identity and how it gets defined, then they should have at it. I mean, as it is, there aren't laws or rules or anything like that about who gets to be black, but there are socially constructed norms, and that's what we're working from. Now, I don't really have a dog in this fight, you know. I'm a white guy. So when I side with the people who are angry at Rachel Dolezal and who say that she's not really black, it's not because I think the current social construction of how we define race is immutably correct or that some different social construction, you know, such as basing it on appearance and cultural adaptation rather than lineage is incorrect. No, I took the side I did because it's recognizing the current reality as it is. I mean, if the culture changes, well, then so will lots of opinions, including mine, on cases like this where people wish to adopt a new race for themselves. Now, the real problem with the Rachel Dolezal case wasn't that she was attempting to change the culture around racial identity. The problem was how she went about it by lying, among many other troubling things. I mean, the problem for her is that if she hadn't lied, then she would have run up against that wall of socially constructed cultural norms, and she never would have been able to call herself black, which left her no choice but to lie to get what she wanted. Hence the backlash. If she or anyone else wants this storyline to play out differently, then they have to do the hard work of changing the cultural norms first. And if Adriana and all of the trans-exclusionary radical feminists want to prevent trans women from using the term women, then she'll have to fight to overturn that social construction as well. But it's more complicated because whereas race is purely a social construction, being trans is actually a medically recognized phenomenon called gender dysphoria. So I know that that is a whole lot of stuff to try to soak in and make sense of, but the bottom line is to understand what a social construction is. Everything else is window dressing. If you understand what a social construction is, then you understand why people are reacting the way they are. Now, you can disagree with how things are currently constructed, what society has collectively agreed on, but you also have to recognize that, well, if you don't want people to be mad, then you either go along with the social construction as it is, or work to change it. What Rachel Dolezal did was not only lie, which pisses people off, but she tried to change a social construction individually. It can't be an individual change. It has to be a social, cultural change. And if you want to push for that change, then go for it. If you want to push for any change, go for it. That's what I'm all about.
Now we're almost done again. Just a quick thank you to Intuit QuickBooks for sponsoring today's episode. If you work for yourself, you can save up to 50% for an entire year on the new QuickBooks Self-Employed. It helps separate your business and personal expenses and helps take the guesswork out of estimated federal quarterly taxes. Try QuickBooks Self-Employed and receive 50% off at tryselfemployed.com slash left. Now that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our sad story